Amen. Thank you, David. And uh, we are blessed this morning, as those of you who've been coming all week know, uh, Pastor Scott Moore, uh, he's been involved in various evangelism schools and church plants. He's currently pastoring the Lady Lake and Leesburg, uh, Florida churches. I, did I get that correct? Absolutely. All right, fantastic. We know he loves his family. We know he loves farming. And so without further ado, Scott, would you come up and bless us? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Pastor. Good morning, friends. You're doing well today? I'm doing well also. Last evening, I got to go to Asheville and see my cousin and his wife. They are podiatrists over there. The Moore Family Foot Clinic or something like that. I probably destroyed the name of their business, but it seems appropriate since his last name is the same as mine. Why not? But uh, it's good to be back here with you this morning. We have been on a journey with John the Beloved. John writes his gospel. He writes the memories that he has of the miracles of Jesus for the purpose of introducing Jesus to us. John's desire, John's goal is that you would know Jesus and his power just as he does. Open your Bibles to the New Testament book of John, John chapter 1, verse 1. We have been over this. We have hit this verse. Three, this is our fourth day. Can you believe that tomorrow is Friday? Oh, my lands. Camp meeting starts and then, it's so fun. It's over. John chapter 1, verse 1 reads like this. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then when we get down to verse 14, remember, John is over here writing at the end of his life, near, near to the point where he is soon going to die, and John's burden is to introduce you to Jesus. And so he initially starts out by saying, the word that was in the beginning, introducing and reminding individuals of what is contained in the Old Testament. Now, John's gospel is not written necessarily for Jewish people. We'll look at that when we get to John 6 and verse 1. John writes, wanting you to know that the word that was in the beginning, the word that all of the Old Testament prophets spoke about is the word, verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John's burden is to introduce the word that is made flesh to us. And of course, that is our goal this week in the morning is to know Jesus as John knew him, to be so comfortable with Jesus that we too would rest our head on the chest of Jesus when we were sitting at a meal. Let's go to John chapter 6. Here's another indication that John is writing his gospel to groups of people that he knows are not familiar with the Old Testament and what is it contained in there. He's writing to an audience that he believes is going to be primarily not Jewish. Verse 1 says, 
After these things, Jesus went over the sea of Galilee. Now, if you were Jewish, you would know, hey, I know the Sea of Galilee. I have been there before. But if you were not Jewish, John, who's taken into account the audience that is going to read from this letter, says, which is the Sea of Tiberias? That was the non-Jewish name of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, while there, Jesus feeds, how many does he feed here? 5,000. We are not looking at that miracle this morning. You and I are going to take a walk on the water. And we're going to take a walk on the water with Peter. Turn, or not turn, you're already there, John 6. Look at verse 14. Let's go to our screen first, though. Our screen shares with us that this miracle that takes place in John 6, verses 14 through 21, is where Jesus overcomes the problem of nature. Jesus and Peter walk on the water together. The Word of God takes us from a life that is full of turmoil and agitation to a life of peace that rises above our circumstances. I have I had a head elder who has moved away from one of the churches that I pastor. We will call him Mr. BC because that's his first and last initial of his first and last name. Mr. BC. Mr. BC was diagnosed with throat cancer. Mr. BC comes to church and he stands up in front and he says, "Well, church, I want you to know I've been diagnosed with throat cancer, but Jesus is on the throne." And I believe that if Jesus wants to heal me, Jesus can heal me. If not, I believe Jesus has a plan. The following week, he comes back and he says, well, church, I want you to know that it has been confirmed. I have a very aggressive form of throat cancer. And uh, if Jesus wants to heal me, he can. But if he has another plan, I'm open to whatever plans he has. And week after week after week, he kept sharing with us. But never once did this man bemoan his circumstance. And I, I said to him numerous times, when individuals in the church would pass away from cancer, and here he is still living, cancer-free, his voice is still there, he still talks, he's still active, he's still uh, working in the garden with his son and his grandkids now. When this guy, when I see this guy, Mr. B.C., Elder B.C., I have to remind him of how much his unwavering faith in the midst of a terrible storm inspired the rest of us. Have you met those people? You meet those people, man. You go, maybe you go to the hospital to visit somebody and uh, you get into that room and you're supposed to be there, right? You go there with a righteous reason of just giving hope to these saints. And you get in there and you walk out more blessed then you feel you could have given to them when you were there. Oh, wow. Jesus truly takes us from a life of turmoil and agitation to a life full of peace that rises above our current circumstance. Here we are in Mark chapter 6 and verse 14. Then those men... When they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, that's the feeding of the 5,000, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. <clears throat> this is that prophet. This is the one 
that the Jewish nation has been waiting for. Verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Keep your finger there in John 6, and let's go to Mark chapter 6. We're going to cross-reference this account, Mark chapter 6 and verse 44. Mark chapter 6 and verse 44. So we know from John that Jesus has fed the 5,000, those that ate of that bread and of those fish, they're like, we've got to take this guy, we've got to make him our king because, wow, look at what he just did, look at what he just fed. Now we're in Mark chapter 6, verse 44, and they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. And straightway, immediately after he has fed the 5,000, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. Jesus, immediately after feeding the 5,000, sends the disciples away. Jesus, immediately after feeding the 5,000, then in verse 45, sends the multitude of people away. Why would Jesus send them away so fast? So this is very interesting. You've got your fingers in John 6 and in Mark chapter 6. In John 6, go back over there to John chapter 6 and verse 15, or verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth the prophet that should come into the world. Verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, departed again into a mountain himself alone. Back over now to Mark chapter 6, the Bible says that Jesus sent away the disciples and sent away the multitude for the purpose of him going up to a mountain to pray. Now, the Bible tells us that the disciples are leaving Beth Bethsaida. If you look in Mark chapter 6, verse 45... It says in Mark 6, verse 45, straightway he constrained the disciples to get into the ship and to go into the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. The disciples had come from Capernaum and they had gone to Bethsaida. That's where this miracle takes place. And then the Bible says that Jesus sends them unto Bethsaida. So you're in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Do any of your Bibles have a marginal reading? Do you have a letter N? Do you have an asterisk? Do you have a number that takes you to the margin or the center column reference? Does it give you a marginal reading for that unto Bethsaida? You don't have a margin. You have a digital Bible. Well, I'll tell you what my Bible says. You, you guys know how to use marginal references, right? As the dear sister in the back is holding up her marginal reference. I've got my marginal reference right here. 
So a marginal, a marginal reference is where there's an indication within the text itself that you need to look in the margin or in the center column and see what that is referring you to. And so right there uh, beside unto Bethsaida in Mark 6.45, I look down here to verse 45, it says, over against Bethsaida. So they're not in Bethsaida, and Jesus is sending them to Bethsaida. They're in Bethsaida, and Jesus is sending them to the opposite side of the, the water from where Bethsaida is. The disciples had come from Capernaum, and Jesus is now sending them back to Capernaum, the place opposite of Bethsaida. Now, why would Jesus, we still have to answer this question, why would Jesus send the multitude away so quickly? You can answer. Because they were going to force him to be king. You're still in Mark chapter 6 and verse 45. And straightway he constrained them. That's not the one we want. Go to John 6 and verse 15. John 6 verse 15. We can switch back and forth. You know, I was in the uh, youth department earlier this week. Uh, a friend of mine is teaching down there, Justin Kim. And um, I went down there, and he said, you need to bring your analog Bible. Because when he said, okay, open your Bibles, I mean, you could almost hear all the of the phones opening up. He said an analog Bible allows you to flip back and forth super fast. Now, I'm an advocator of having a Bible. It doesn't, doesn't have to be one Bible or the other, but I thought that was cool. So right now, I'm flipping back and forth in my analog Bible. So John chapter 6 and verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived, how many men did Jesus just feed? 5,000, and he also has his disciples. We are in John chapter 6, John 6 and verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he, according to Mark chapter 6, sends the disciples away. He, according to Mark chapter 6, sends the multitude away. No way are you going to force me to be a king. And then Jesus goes to the mountain to pray. Why would they, com why would they feel compelled to make Jesus a king? Spit some of that out. Why would they feel compelled after this miracle of feeding of the 5,000? Why why would they be compelled to make Jesus a king? Because he can feed them. Hey, let's, let's face it. Most of us got up earlier than normal today so that we could have biscuits and gravy. By the way, I've thoroughly enjoyed breakfast here at camp meeting, haven't you? I mean, you got the eggs, you got your grits. You can't have a breakfast without grits. I tell my wife that every time she tries to serve a cereal. I was like, sweetheart, these are not grits. She's like, Scott, you've got to eat something other than grits. I said, give me some yellow grits, then I'll eat those. <laughs> Amen, right? Um, why would they want to make Jesus king? Because he could feed them. What else? They've been looking for a king. What kind of king have they been looking for? A powerful king to get rid of the Romans, right? What would be other reasons? Healing, that's right. If the soldier gets wounded, did you have the same one? Yeah, because he could influence lots of people, right? Is it, am I picking up what you're laying down? Catching what you're throwing? Smelling what you're cooking? A buddy of mine would say, tasting what I'm chewing? I'm like, no way, dude. 
So let's go to the screen. Many of the reasons that you have mentioned are up here. What compelled them to want to crown Jesus king? He could heal the sick. He could feed 5,000 simply with five loaves and two fish. Can you imagine the logistics? Yesterday afternoon, I was listening to General Schwarzkopf give his hour-long presentation on how the war was going from many moons back. And uh, he said the logisticians, I love, I love multi-syllable words. And logisticians, he said, we couldn't have done what we did without the logisticians. And I was like, I have got to use that word somehow tomorrow. So Jesus didn't even need logisticians. I've used it. There we go. He didn't even need logisticians. He could just plan it, and it would go as planned. He would be able to make Judea a land that truly flowed. I'm back on the slide with milk and honey. He could break the power of the Romans, deliver Judah and Jerusalem, heal the soldiers wounded in battle, supply the entire army with food, conquer the nations, and bring Israel to its rightful dominance. He could usher in the amazing, the amazing uh, nation of Israel. Why would Jesus send the multitude away so quickly? Why not be crowned king? Because all of that was contrary to the plan of God. Jesus came as a conqueror of hearts. He came to focus the eyes of humanity on its helpless condition. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to bring redemption from the tyranny of Satan. He came to show humanity the Father's heart. Jesus came to save. Repeat this verse with me. We've hit it, and by the grace of God, we hit it every Sabbath at our churches in Florida. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. Now, yesterday, by the way, these are milk crates. I don't, that's, it's a, I, I knocked this over yesterday when I was taking my stuff, and I was like, I thought that was some fancy thing. So I'm, I thought about standing on it today, but that floor is a lot further away than this one. And I don't want to lose anything that's important, you understand. But uh, I have no idea why I was telling you that. That Yeah, that I do. That, that's my hobby horse. That's my soapbox. So often we are quick to condemn people. We are quick to judge people. We are quick to, to see things from just our side. I have a, had a conversation with my cousin last night where we were talking about some, some concerns that we had about what's going on in the world and, and then different concerns inside our own family circle. And um, I was like, look, man, the, the issue is you and I are only hearing one side of a story. We're only getting one side. We're only getting one individual's perspective of a situation. Where's the other perspective? Dear Christian friend of mine, regardless of your denomination, dear Christian that is watching online, maybe in your hotel room, maybe it was just too far of a gap to jump from there to here, or maybe you're watching this later. We as Christians, regardless of denomination, need to stop becoming what Jesus was never sent to be. 
Jesus was not sent to condemn, but to save. And if you and I are to represent Jesus on planet Earth, then you and I are also in the business of saving people, not condemning people. Oh, you say amen, right? Until somebody gets pregnant out of wedlock in our church. And then all of us ameners are like, we have got to censor that person. We have got to do something to send a message so that every other young person doesn't make that mistake and bring shame to the glory of God. Why did it get so quiet? So I got my girlfriend pregnant out of wedlock. The pastor of my home church was approached by the conference. It was the conference church. Lots of reputation to uphold there. And the conference told that pastor that they needed to uh, discipline me and I needed to be ousted and then loved back in. Now we hear that, don't we? I'm not against church discipline. I'm not against that at all. But I'm against people doing that that don't have the heart of Jesus. And so this, this pastor was told by the conference, do you see when things are crooked, do you have to straighten them? Like that is awful. The stuff on the, it's awful. And it's not everything. My wife says, why can't you do that with your clothes on the floor? I said, sweetheart, they look straight to me. So the conference told this pastor that they needed to oust me. And uh, I didn't know this until many years later when I had a conversation with this pastor. And uh, the pastor told the conference, I'm not going to do that. They said, well, you can either do that or accept a call somewhere else. You know what he did? He accepted a call somewhere else. You know, if it weren't for that man, I wouldn't be in ministry today. Many years later, he told me that I was like, brother, like you had to uproot your kids, your wife for me. He's like, Scott, uh, I, I almost told you the name of the church, <laughs> put brakes on. He said, Scott, you were more valuable to me and my family than our job. My friends, where is the love in our Christian churches that would allow someone to make a, state, a mistake and to still worship the Lord? Where's that love? So let's fast forward 27 years from that moment. Fast forward 27 years from that moment. There's a young man that does not attend our church. He's on the books. And he got his girlfriend pregnant out of wedlock. His mama comes to me. Pastor, pastor, I just don't know what to say. I looked at her and I said, sister, my mama knows the feelings that you're feeling right now. And my mama made it through it. I said, and as far as your son is concerned, don't you worry. I'll lose my job before he ever is removed from the church records. She said, Pastor, what are we going to do? I said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to visit him. 
I'm on Bible study with him. I'm going to help he and his, his girlfriend to do whatever we can. We as a church are going to support not his mistake, but we are going to support him, we're going to support her, and we are going to get that little baby into crater roll. Now, some people may call me crazy. Some people may say, hey, you're lowering the standards of the church. And, well, I don't know. It seemed to be working. My friends, Jesus' burden is to draw people to himself, not drive them away. I have a cousin, grew up in the same church that I grew up in. They had a different pastor at the time. She got pregnant out of wedlock. They disciplined her, took her name off the church books. She hasn't been back to church since. I understand there's a place for church discipline, but if you're not going to do it with the heart of Jesus, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. Ellen White has a lot to say about that, by the way. Maybe we should read about that from time to time. Jesus' burden was to seek and to save the lost. Let's go back to Mark chapter 6 now. Mark chapter 6 and verse 47. You know, I just told that story as if it was not a big deal. You know, when I got my, my girlfriend pregnant out of wedlock, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. I was a student in the theology department at Southern Adventist University when that happened. Oh, dear. And I went to every one of my professors and asked them, can I drop your class? Why? So I had to explain it to every one of my, one of my professors. And one of them, Dr. Don Leatherman, that was his first year at Southern. Dr. Don Leatherman says, the only one of the teachers there to do this. Now, I know that Philip Simon would have been spot on with this. I mean, he would have jumped on this the same way that Pastor Leatherman did. And Pastor Leatherman was not an easy instructor. This guy held you through your feet to the fire. And he said to me, he said, Scott, what can my wife and I do to help you? I said, Elder, you're just going to have to pray for us. You fast forward 20 some odd years later, and I'm marching at Southern Adventist University getting a master's degree. I'm marching at Southern. The master's degree came from Andrews. I'm marching at Southern with my son and my two nieces on the same graduation day. And guess who's retiring that day? Don Leatherman. I went up to Don Leatherman and I, I said, brother, you, you're not going to remember me from Adam, but your first year at Southern, there was a young redheaded fella that came and ha you had to sign that he could, he could drop your class. And he explained that he and his girlfriend had gotten pregnant and you asked what you and your wife, oh yeah, I remember. I said, I'm that man. Thank you for being Jesus to me in that moment. My mama went through shame. My daddy went through Oh, I'll tell you, my daddy, when, when we told my daddy, my daddy said, I get to be a grandpa? That's not what my mama said, I guarantee you that. But my daddy was like, I get to be a grandpa. We're in Mark chapter 6, verse 47. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he, that would be Jesus, is alone on the land. And he saw them toiling in rowing. For the wind was contrary to them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the sea and would have passed them by. Jesus, when he is on the mountain praying, 
Jesus is watching the disciples. And here's the amazing part. The disciples are in a sailboat, and they are supposed to be sailing over to Capernaum. But the Bible tells us that they're not sailing. What are they doing? They are rowing. The wind is coming straight at them. They can't, what is that called when you go one way and the other way in a sailboat? What's that called? Tacking. They can't even tack to get that thing to go the direction they need it to go. They can't sail. Go now to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, remember, we're bouncing back and forth between Mark 6 and John 6. So we're in John chapter 6 and verse 18. The Word of God reads in John 6 and verse 18, the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. The sea was stirred up by a great wind. It was a wind that was blowing the opposite directions from the direction that the disciples needed to go. It was blowing from Capernaum toward Bethsaida. If it had been blowing the other way, no problem. They would have been home in no time at all. When they had rowed, verse 19, when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they, seeing Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh to the ship, they were afraid. So these disciples have been rowing now for about three to three and a half miles. Back in, um, man, when was this? This has probably been uh, 15 years ago. My wife, our five kids, uh, another pastor friend of mine, his two kids, we all went to the Green River. We started out on the Nolan River in Kentucky. It intersects the Green River. And we had put one car where we were going to take out because when you, when you float a river, you always got one car up here where you put in and one car down there where you take out so you can ferry yourself back and forth, right? So we had put one car down here and we had all ridden together back to the place where we had left our floating uh, boats we were fly fishermen and uh, still enjoy doing that. Um, and so we're floating. Now, we got started late that night, early that morning. Uh, my buddy was getting his fishing gear, and he picked up his tackle box, and there was a uh, two, it had two sets of hooks on it. It was one of those rattle baits that, that you'd never want to fish in a weedy area with. And are you identifying anybody like to fish? Okay, anybody like hearing about fishing? And fish stories, they get better every time you tell them. And so he goes to pick up his fishing gear and shink one of the barbed hooks off of that treble, the rear treble on that lure goes into his finger. He's like, Scotty, what are we going to do? I said, bro, what are your options? He's like, we can go to the hospital and ruin our day, or you can pull it out. I was like, let's pull it out, brother. Let's pull it out. He's like, that's exactly what I was thinking. And so he's holding his finger down like this, and I grab a set of pliers, and I was like, are you ready? He said, yeah, on three. I said, one, two, and ripped it out. He was like, Phew, now we can go. And he wraps his finger up and puts some duct tape on it because he knew he was going to get it wet, and that's much better than a Band-Aid. And so we are on the road. We are traveling on I-65 South, and he's in front of me, and all of a sudden the little boat that he's pulling behind his, his, um, his uh, what is it, a Kia something, Sorrento, I think, it's, it falls off. 
And it's dragging down the roads, one of those plastic boats that looks like a rectangle. You can get it from Bass Pro Shop or Walmart during the fishing season. And it's just, it's just sliding along the back the side of the road. Flashlights, flashlights. We pull over, we put it back on, but it's got a hole in it. And we're like, oh man, now we got to find something to, to fill up that hole. So we go to, it's a Sunday morning, we go to this local paint shop just right off of this exit. We find this local paint shop and we get a bunch of, uh, 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 caulking. We look for that spray foam. We couldn't find the spray foam. We're like, maybe this stuff will, maybe this stuff will set up and get hard before we get there. We're like five or six tubes up in this big old hole on this boat. And his daughter looks at us and says, don't you think the Lord might be telling us we need to go home? We looked at each other. We're like, no way. The devil's just trying to ruin some fun. So we get to the Nolan River, and we, we're going down the Nolan River, no problem. He's got his little battery-powered uh, trolling motor, and we're there rowing our big old uh, pontoon boat that's got uh, 16-foot pontoons on either side. That you blow it up with a, the air pump, and, uh, man, we are just having a great time. My kids are in the blow-up kayak that we got from REI, one of those really tough ones, and... Uh, we get to the Green River and we're like, oh, finally there's a current. His battery dies. We're tired of rowing. The sun has gone down. And we hear this noise that sounds like a jet engine. And we're like looking up. We're looking for this jet. And then we see a bunch of stars. And my wife says, drop the anchor. Well, gentlemen, you know when your wife uses that tone of voice like your mama used to use? You don't ask questions. We dropped the anchor, tied all three, the, the kayak, and tied his uh, now halfway sunk uh, boat all to, the, to our one boat, and this anchors, and it, it was, it's a fly fishing anchor, so it rolls, and it just allows you to keep moving, but it rocks back and forth, and it slows you way down, and we get out the map. And there's this little black line across the map. And we go to the legend of the map, and it says, damn. And so my buddy and I say, hey, Melanie, you stay here with the kids. We're going to go down and look and see how bad it is. Maybe we can just go over the top of it. My wife said, oh, no, you're not leaving me here with all these kids to go over a waterfall and me be the reason that all of us die. That is not going to happen. We're like, all right, so what are we going to do? She says, we're going to row all the way against the current for about three miles. And we did. I think we should listen to his daughter, but praise the Lord, we were safe. These disciples had to row against the wind, against the waves, against the direction of the water for three to three and a half miles. The disciples, let's go to our screen. The disciples are tired. The disciples are giving up. The disciples realize their need of Christ and are now longing for Jesus to show up and do what he does best, say, them. In storm and darkness, the sea had taught them their own helplessness. Amen. Have you ever been in a storm? Not just one on the water, 
not just one uh, in an automobile accident or something, but have you ever been in a storm that's taking place in your life or in your family's life and you think to yourself, I just can't make it. In the storm and darkness, the sea had taught the disciples their own helplessness and they longed for the presence of their master. You can see where Bethsaida is and where Capernaum is. The disciples are simply uh, sailing or trying to sail from Bethsaida over to Capernaum, about three miles via boat, about four miles over land. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 25, so we're throwing in another one of these gospels, you see, even God gave us four witnesses so that we could know the truth. Don't sit down over some decaf coffee at some coffee shop with somebody and listen to all their gossip without having the other side of the story with you. Uh, I have a friend of mine, um, we call him Matty P. He taught me this huge lesson early in ministry, when we would have um, issues between students, he'd be like, all right, let's get that student in here. Let's get that student in here. We'll all sit down and we'll just have a big old powwow and we'll talk about this. And so, isn't that the way it should be done? Why should somebody go over here and talk to this person and then go over there and talk to that person and take copious amounts of notes when you can get everybody in the same room and just hash it out? Boy, wouldn't our, a lot of our problems be solved quick if we did that. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Now, the disciples had been told by Jesus to get into that boat, according to the gospel of John, that happens when evening had come. So, the first watch is from 6 to 9 p.m. Second watch is from 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. Third watch is from 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. The disciples have been rowing since about 4 or 5 p.m. The previous day, they've been rowing against the wind for about 12 hours, yet Jesus was watching them. Sometimes the Lord allows things to get to a certain point in our life. I would say most of the time, the Lord allows things to get to a certain point to where you and I finally realize that without God, we can do nothing. And boy, when you're in the middle of all that mess in your life, it's hard to see through it, isn't it? I mean, you're in this big old emotional mess or, or this financial mess or, or this family mess or this work mess, and all of us have been in some of those messes, and we're like, Lord, how am I going to get through this? And then a year, two, three years later, you're looking back and you're like, wow. Boy, Jesus really performed miracles for us, didn't he? You look back on those experiences and you realize that you have grown. Like many of us grew up in a church that was very uh, anti-Jesus, meaning that it was very, very condemning. It was a church that, that judged us very harshly. It was a church that would rather have discipline than love. It was a church where the, the doctrine was more important than the person that was hearing the doctrine. Oh, man, if we had time, we could look at the habits of Jesus, and we would see that Jesus broke with tradition, 
so many times so that he could minister to the hearts of the people that he was around. My friends, when will people become more important to us than just the doctrine? And don't get me wrong, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. I love the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist church. We teach them. As a matter of fact, my sermonic calendar, brother, is like this. Let's get out the 28 Fundamental Beliefs book, and we'll outline part of the chapter, and we'll preach it. You know what my church members are saying to me? Scott, we have never heard messages like this before in our lives. This stuff is so powerful. And I'll tell them, well, next week, it's going to be based on this chapter in this book. The 20, it's not called the 28 Fundamental Beliefs. Growing in Christ, I believe it's what it's called now. And uh, I'll say it's going to be based on this particular chapter. And the next Sabbath, they'll come back. Whoa, we have never heard stuff like this. And I look at them and I say, you were told last week where to find this stuff. We could hear stuff like this every day of the week if we spent time in it. So I told you on Monday, I'd share with you how many days in a row I have been reading. Now, this is not bragging. This is not bragging. At the beginning of 2022, our church made a commitment, and both churches made a commitment to spend more time with Jesus. So we have had 152 days in the year 2022 so far. And my Bible app, I listen to it while I drive. I listen to it when I'm taking a shower. I listen to it when I wake up in the morning. I listen to it sometimes when I'm going to sleep at night, although I like it quiet when I'm going to sleep. It says... Unless I'm sitting at the kitchen table, I can just put my head down and go to sleep anytime. Good morning, Scott. You've connected with God's Word for 152 days in a row. Now you're saying, hey, you're a pastor. You're supposed to do that. They pay you to study the Bible, man. Do you know pastors get busy too? You know pastors miss morning worship too? Or they skip it? because they're in a hospital visiting or somebody's kid's been in an automobile accident or somebody in their church has passed away or they're on hospice and they just get busy and they get tired. 152 days in a row I've listened to the Bible. I've listened through it once in the King James Version and now I'm going through it, please don't crucify me, in the New International Version. And I'm absolutely loving it. The NIV is so easy to understand that I'm listening to it at 1.5 speed. This year, I anticipate reading through the Bible three to four times because Alexander Scorby is reading it to me. The Bible says here in Mark chapter 6 and verse 40, where are we going? We're going to Matthew something, aren't we? Where are we going? Matthew 14, 25, the fourth watch, they've been rowing for about 12 hours now, and Jesus was watching the disciples. On our screen, Psalm 121, verse 4 says, Behold, he that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Dear heart, dear Christian friend of mine, Jesus is watching you. Jesus knows your heartache. He knows when your heart is mending. He knows what's coming down the road, and he's preparing us for it. Jesus is watching you. Jesus cares for you. Yesterday, I got a haircut, and uh, uh, I was watching all that gray get cut right out of my hair. It was amazing. And I thought, Jesus knows how many hairs I have on my head. Now, it can be argued some have more than others, the fact is, he knows it. 
Jesus cares for you. Jesus is watching over you. The Bible says in John chapter 6 and verse 19, John 6 and verse 19, it tells us in John 6, 19, that the disciples, the very last part of John 6 verse 19 says that the disciples were afraid. The disciples think that they are seeing a ghost. The disciples do not realize that Jesus is there with them during this time of agitation and that very soon Jesus will bring peace. The very ghost that they are afraid of is the one who has come to save them. You and I might be like the disciples. Oh, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? I've tried for so long. One of my buddies who's watching online, hello to uh, Brooke and Bob Young. Uh, Brooke is our church secretary, and Bob uh, helps take care of the church, and is just super good friends of ours. Uh, and he said last, he texted me yesterday, and he said, I want patience now. Right, because we talked about patience yesterday. You and I might be like the disciples. We're in a situation and we're afraid. We don't know how it's going to end. My friends, if Jesus is with us, it's going to end well. We may not see it as ending well on planet Earth, but it will end well. And the resurrection will make all of those wrongs right. We may have been trying for many years to roll away from a particular sin, a care, or a burden. We may even be fearing truly giving ourselves to Jesus. We may be afraid to let Jesus have our life because we are scared of losing control. Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 20, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. Don't be afraid. No matter what we are going through, Jesus is with us. And when we're scared, Jesus says, It's me. Don't be afraid. Now that takes faith. It may be very difficult for, for some of us to believe that Jesus is there. The Bible says in Mark, not Mark, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Malachi 3, 6, I'm God and I do not change. Jesus is with you. Let's go back to the account in Matthew now. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, we will begin reading in verse 28. Matthew 14, 28. After Jesus says in 27, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, Lord, if it is you, ask me to come with you onto the water. Peter grew up fishing with his daddy. Peter grew up with Andrew fishing with their daddy. Peter grew up with their daddy fishing with, uh, let's see, James and John, the sons of Alphaeus. Is that right? 
the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee, is that right? Zebedee? So Andrew and Peter's daddy fished with James and John's daddy. As a matter of fact, Scripture will go so far as to lead us to the belief that they had a business together. John, uh, John, and, and, John and James' dad actually had servants working for them, which tells us that they were not uh, doing too bad in the fishing world. This is how John could get into the uh, high priest's court at the, at the trial of Jesus. So here we are. Peter, who's grown up as a fisherman, who every time he has said to his dad, watch this, dad, watch this, dad, I'm going to jump off the boat and I'm going to run on top of the water just like a lizard does before I go under. Watch this, watch this. Doesn't work. Next time, come on, dad, come on, dad, watch, 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 watch. Son, you know we fish by nets and you're going to scare all the fish away. Watch this, daddy, watch this, daddy. And he's running, running, running from one end of the ship to the other and he hits the water. He has the audacity to say to Jesus, if it is you... The implication is, if you're walking on the water and you ask me to walk on the water, then I know that I can walk on the water as well. My friends, do you believe that Jesus has conquered Satan? Do you believe that on the cross when Jesus cried out, it is finished, that he absolutely meant it? So when Jesus is walking on the water, even in the troubled storm of the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, when the wind is contrary in our own lives, Jesus says, it is I, be not afraid. And that's the point where you and I have the opportunity to say to Jesus, okay, if it's really you, I want to walk with you in this storm. Jesus says to Peter, come. One word. I mean, if, if Jesus had been from Alabama and he said, hop on out here, boy. Jesus just simply says, come. And Peter, he goes over the scenario three or four times. With dad, I always sink. With dad, I always always sank. Andrew's like, oh no, here we go again. He knows it with daddy always sank. And he doesn't sink at first. He doesn't sink. He's walking on the water. The Bible says, and when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Initially, after knowing that Jesus was the one that was walking in the water, Peter did not notice the wind. Peter did not notice the waves. All that he noticed was Jesus. Don't you just love it when people like Mr. B.C. come into your life and are facing imminent death with a fast-growing throat cancer, when those individuals can stand in the middle of that storm and say, I have peace above the storm. With Christ, all things are possible. But, verse 30, but when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. It is so easy for us to take our eyes off of Jesus. Say again. Oh, well, look at that. Peter's reaching out of the water. I was in... Um, 
What's the river that runs beside Andrews University? St. Joseph River. My son and I, we are fly fishermen, love fly fishing. It's snowing. We drive for the purpose of fly fishing in the St. Joseph River right below the dam. We drive from Troy, Michigan, all the way over to Andrews University. And we get to where you can park below the dam. And I've got on my insulated Carhartt overalls. It's snowing. I've got on my wool socks. We, uh, my insulated Carhartt overalls, and I have on top of that my insulated Carhartt coat. And then on top of that, I have my chest waders. And I forgot to bring the belt that goes on the top of your chest waders. You know, when chest waders get full of water, you can't stand up. You can't stand up. Even a football player couldn't stand up if the chest waders were full of water. So I forgot the belt. No big deal. I'll just tighten that little uh, bungee cord that's at the top anyway. And then we put on, he puts on his stuff, I put on my stuff, and we are chunk and dunk uh, fly fishing, which means that you've got this really heavy lead weight um, that your fly, once, you, once it, the weight goes in the water, it goes all the way to the bottom, and then your fly flops in the current, and phoom, theoretically, the fish is going to get it, and then you get to phoom, haul in the big one, take big pictures, and brag to David Asher and Nathan Renner. Well, anyway... Uh, we're fishing and my lure gets stuck. I know. I spent time making that lure. I spent time making that weight because it was a lot cheaper to make it than it was to buy it. And so I start inching forward. Now, the closer I get to the dam, the deeper the water gets. And that water is really pushing up against you coming out of that dam. And I've got my 12-foot fly rod out there, and I'm just inching forward, inching forward, and my feet come out from underneath me. Before my face went under the water, I mean, the whole scenario goes through your mind. It's going to fill up. You're going to die. Your son's going to be there. This is going to be awful. What is his mama going to say? She's going to hate me for this. Yada, 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 yada. Before my face goes under the water, I hollered, Jesus, save me. The next thing I know, I'm soaking wet. The next instant, I'm soaking wet, standing on the side of the St. Joe. I know. And my coat is already starting to freeze. I looked at Daniel. He looked at me. I said, what happened? He said, you almost died. I said, how did I get over here? He said, I don't know. You just got there. This is a situation with Peter. Peter's walking in the water with Jesus and then he sees the wind and the waves around him and he begins to sink. Look at what the Bible says here. Verse 30, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. You know, every time I tell that story, because uh, I'm a sanguine, when I tell a story, it gets better and better. I never really lie. The story just gets more details just because of the sanguine's personality. Every time I tell that story, I think, wow, that needs to be in Guide Magazine because that's exactly the way it happened. Lord, save me. I don't know what wind is blowing in your life. Maybe, maybe you, you've lost children. Maybe your relationships in your family are not what they should be. Maybe the bills are overwhelming for you. Maybe you've lost your job. I'm trying to think of all these situations that you could be in. Maybe you're angry at somebody. Maybe, um, 
maybe life is not all peaches and cream. That would be ice cream, vanilla ice cream. Maybe your life is not like that, and you want to be rescued. You could join Peter. You could join Scott Moore, and you could say, Lord, save me. What happens next? Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? My friends, Jesus does not condemn Peter. Jesus is just like, come on, bro. Like, exercise a little more faith, man. Now I know Jesus probably didn't talk with a southern accent. But Jesus was real. This is the Jesus that gave nicknames to his disciples. This is the Jesus that would say, you guys are sons of thunder. Peter, you're a little bitty pebble. You're not this big, massive rock. This is Jesus that would let John lay his head on his chest. And Jesus says to Peter, man, just a little more faith. Peter had opportunity to exercise that faith. The Bible tells us, history tells us that Peter is crucified upside down. Exercising faith in the promises of the Lord Jesus. This morning, you and I have opportunity to exercise that kind of faith. We may not be in a ship. We not, may not be traveling across the sea. Let's go to our screen. We actually may dream with Jesus about projects. We may dream with Jesus about our church being so on fire, it is hard for us not to be consumed. We may dream about having a truly godly family where everyone has a relationship with Jesus. Everybody spends at least 30 minutes in a morning devotional time. We may think and dream about giving our patients good health. When we are dreaming with Jesus, we have confidence, we have boldness, because we are with Jesus. Yet when we are living out those dreams that Jesus has given to us, we get cold feet. When our plans are poo-pooed, we shrink. Don't stop dreaming with Jesus. The only way to dream with Jesus is to be with Jesus. The only way to be with Jesus is to open up the Word of God and listen to it while you're driving, listen to it while you're taking a shower, listen to it when you're, when you're uh, if, the, if the sermon's boring, put your earbud in and be in church to add your presence and then listen to the Bible. I'm not advocating it, really. Am I, Miss Gloria Holland Curry? I ask my daughter sometimes, I'm like, sweetheart, what are you doing on your phone during the sermon? Then she reminds me she's got a Bible on there. And I'm like, oh, me of little faith. My friends, Jesus has it all handled. He knew the storm was going to be there, and so he was watching. When it gets to the point where they realize they can't handle the situation by themselves, when their hearts are longing for Jesus to save them, he shows up, walking on the water. When he gets into that ship, immediately they are on the shore. Immediately the storm is calm. My friends, Jesus wants to do that in every one of us. 
Take the situation that you're going through. Take the circumstances that you find yourself in that are not comfortable. Show it to Jesus and say, Jesus, save me. Because Jesus never changes. Because he came to seek and to save the lost. Because he longs with all of his heart for you to be safe and content and joyful in this life. He will help you. He will take care of the situation. I'm currently in a situation that deals with my extended family. And I ask the Lord Jesus almost every day, how are you going to fix this, Lord? How are you going to fix it? How are you going to take care of this? If they won't even talk to us, Lord, how are you going to fix it? And you know, I believe he will. I believe he will. And until that day, I'm just going to keep my eyes focused on Jesus. Because it is very uh, stormy in my family. I get up here and preach like there's nothing wrong, like we're living the dream, we're high on the hog. Can you say that in an Adventist convocation? (laughs) High on the hog. Every one of us have issues. Every one of us are facing things. And Jesus is right there reaching out his hand. All he's asking you to do is to take his hand. And he'll lead us through it. Is that your desire? You want to take the hand of Jesus this morning? Raise it up. Symbolically take the hand of Jesus. Father in heaven, what a joy for us to know that Jesus is always there. What a privilege for us to walk hand in hand with the creator of this world. Jeremiah 32, 17, your promise to us, God, is, ah, Lord God, you have made heaven and earth and there is nothing too hard for you. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. My God will supply all my need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done, are doing, and will continue to do in our lives because you have saved us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thus concludes this part of our service. Uh, Please note on the front door, some classrooms have changed. If this is your first day at camp meeting, maybe you're able to join us here for the last half of the week and you have your uh, program in one hand, make sure that the location of your class matches the changes that have been posted on the front door of this building. God bless you all. Enjoy the rest of your day as you worship God. Camp meeting's a high time. We get to worship God all day long. Turn your phone off if you don't want to be interrupted. God bless you, my friends. I could ramble forever. Praise the Lord.